0: And so if you'll turn with me to Luke 21, uh, I want to read kind of the the parallel passage of what Dan read from Matthew. Uh, If you look in Luke 21, you'll notice that uh, Jesus is once again, they're pointing out to him uh, in verse 5, the stones, the adorning stones. And the reason why the Luke passage is going to be helpful is that it gives a little bit more information that uh, that will help us navigate through the Matthew passage. And, I, and, and the section I wanted to refer you to is this, verse 20. It says, But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the hills, and let those who are in the midst of her depart, and let not those who are in the country enter her. For these are the days of vengeance, that all things which were, are written may be fulfilled. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days, for there will be great distress in the land and wrath upon this people. And this is the important verse. And they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive to all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Then you'll notice that in the New King James, uh, the a bold number 25. That means this is a paragraph break. And there will be signs in the sun and in the moon and in the stars and the earth, distress of nations and with perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring, men's hearts failing them for, from fear and the expectation of those things which are coming on the earth. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken." And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to happen, look up and lift up your heads, because your redemption draws near. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would please be with us now as we seek to study some difficult things in Scripture, some scary things in Scripture, but some absolutely essential things in Scripture. And for those of us living in 2022, We pray that you will help us, for these days are closer than they were even when Jesus spoke these things. And we ask that you would prepare us. We ask that we would be people who are prepared and people who are ready uh, for what happens here in this gospel age. Bless us and help us, we pray. In Jesus' name. Like I said, we've been talking about eschatology, and last week we looked at verses, you know, Jesus was at the temple, they said, look at all these wonderful uh, buildings, and Jesus said, I tell you, a day is coming when not one stone will be upon another, this thing will be obliterated. They got Jesus privately, and they said, when will these things be, when will this be obliterated? And what is the sign of your coming? They thought that was the the all one thing. So then Jesus begins a teaching. And as we saw last week in verse 4 of Matthew 24, Jesus says to them, don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. And then he gives them in verses 4 through 14 an overview of the entire gospel age, an age of persecution, an age when Christians are tribulated, an age of warfare, an age of, of apostasy turning away, an age of great deception, an age where the love of many will grow cold, and then an age where the gospel is preached to all nations and then Jesus returns. And so that's what he's giving us. In, and, and what I want you to understand, this is a very important principle in understanding the Bible and what the Bible teaches about even eschatology because people tend to think of eschatology as those few years right before Jesus returns, or some, some of those seven years. And that's not a biblical understanding at all. A biblical understanding is, is that, that from the moment of Jesus' first appearing to his second appearing... That is going to be a period of time where there is going to be, all of these events will take place in every generation in one sense. They're going to take place. There's going to be Antichrist. There's going to be tribulation. There's going to be be apostasy. There's going to be this. And I often think of it, and when I teach uh, uh, eschatology, I I, I give people sort of the illustration. If you've ever been on the beach and you've made a a castle, a sandcastle, and then the, the tide starts to come in. And one wave comes, and then another wave comes, and it gets closer to your castle, and then another wave comes, and it gets closer to your castle, and finally that final wave comes, and it wipes out your castle. Eschatology is kind of like that. For instance, in 1 John chapter 1, and verse 18, uh, John writes this. Little children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. See, those are the waves. Many Antichrists have come, by which we know it is the last hour. Satan is unleashing antichrists and they're coming and they're coming. And there have been many antichrists coming since Jesus' time as well. Let me give you an example of one. We're all aware right now in the news of the Ukraine and how the Ukrainians are fighting against the Russians. But what we don't know, most of us Americans, what we don't know is why the Ukrainians are fighting so vehemently against the Russians. Well, you might think, well, you know, they're being invaded. That's why. Well, there's more to it than that. There's more to it than that. You see, you need to understand that during World War II, the Nazis took over the Ukraine. The Ukraine was, was, is, is a big, it's like Kansas. It's a big wheat field. The Nazis took over the Ukraine, and then the Russians beat them back, okay? But unlike the Americans, the Russians didn't leave the Ukraine. They, in, they made the Ukraine part of the Soviet Union. And so what they decided to do, because they were socialists, what socialists do is socialists believe that the state should take over everything and run everything. And so what the Soviets did under Joseph Stalin is, is they came to every farmer. So say you were a farmer and you owned 500 acres. You had a tractor, you have a barn, you have a business going. They came to every farmer in the Ukraine and they said to the Ukrainian farmers, that land is now the state's land. The Soviet Union now owns all of your, you're no longer a farmer like this. You're an employee of the Soviet Union. You're part of a large farm collective, and we have bureaucrats who are deciding what fuel to buy, what tractors to use, when to plant, when to sow, and you are now just simply an employee, and you'll get paid minimum wage, and we'll give you a little bag of wheat when you're done, but now this barn, this land, and everything is ours. Well, the Ukrainian farmers weren't going to just roll over and play dead easily. And so the Ukrainian farmers said, no, we resist. No, that's stupid. No, that's crazy. No, you're going to impoverish all of us, which they, in fact, did. The Soviet Union, in fact, impoverished everybody because collective farming didn't work. But what the farmers did is they said, no, they were resisting. And and, And then what would happen is when the grain was harvested, these farmers would take this grain and they would hide it they would hide it well when joseph stalin realized what was going on realized that they were resisting collective farming realized they were resisting his socialist agenda then they sent the russian army in. and what they did is they went house to house to these farmers they confiscated everything that they had they confiscated their tractors they take and they took they took basically poles and they beat on the floor. And if they found a hollow spot where they were hiding grain, they immediately took all of the men of that household, the farmer, his sons, and they took them to Siberia where they would die of starvation and that in the gulags. Eventually what happened is, is that this massive man-made, government-made uh, uh, famine took place in the Ukraine. People had no food. The, Soviets, the Russians took all of the food. They had no food. And they were literally starving. And people write stories of they would go out and they would wake up in the morning and in their old in their garden, which has already been harvested, like we're harvesting our gardens now, in their gardens they would find corpses of women and children and people bloated who had been digging in the mud in the wintertime trying to get the roots of what there was in the roots of their tomato plants, the roots of these people left in their garden to eat. It's estimated that 3.9 million people died of starvation. million people. And that's why Joseph Stalin is considered one of the greatest mass murderers in the history of mankind. 3.9 million people died of starvation because he forced them to starve until they they became a part of the socialist agenda that that he wanted to, to impose. Now think of this. You're living in the Ukraine. It's in the 1940s and 1950s. Your farm has been taken. Your husband has been sent off to the prisoner of war camp. An atheist leader, Joseph Stalin, is the head of the country. The Eastern Orthodox Church is in bed with him in order to keep their power, just like they are with Putin today. And that's why the head of the Russian Eastern Orthodox Church is in so much trouble today because he refuses He refuses to, to protest against the war now. They're in bed. So you have this false church and you have this government, this atheist government, in bed together, forcing famine. Your children are starving. You're starving. It's illegal to be a Christian. You're in this country, Ukraine. What are you thinking? The end times have come. The Antichrist is here. This is it. How could it get any worse? And so you see, that wasn't the end times. Nevertheless, Joseph Stalin was an Antichrist figure. He was an Antichrist. And he's a mini model of what is to come. He was just one of the waves. One of the waves. And so what Jesus is going to do is try to prepare his people, especially for the final wave. Another wave, what's going to happen in Jerusalem, and then the final wave. And so that's what we're going to look at today. And so what Jesus, remember Jesus was asked two questions. So let's let's study our Bibles now. Look at... Um, Look at verse 3. He was asked, tell us when these things will be, the destruction of Jerusalem, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And and Jesus is now going to answer both of their questions. In verses 15, and then we're not sure. I'm a little bit of of, uh, puzzlement here, whether it's 21, 22, or or what. Jesus is going to talk about the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. This took place in 70 A.D., And then he's going to change and he's going to start talking about his, his coming. He's going to actually start to present to, them, pe- to the people that this is two separate things. Verses 15 through, say, 19 is very localized. It has to do with Judea. He's telling the people in Judea to run to the mountains. But as you move past 21 and 22, now you're talking about the elect. Now you're talking about the entire world. And you're talking, finally, about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So there's, there's two things going on in this text. So let's begin with the first one, the destruction of Jerusalem. Verse 15. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let him who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes, but woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. Now, the abomination that causes desolation, the word abomination is kind of an interesting word. In the original language, it means to reek with stench, disgustingly abhorrent. And then it took on this idea of the moral horror, a stench to God. Now, when Daniel, who in the book of Daniel uh, wrote uh, about this abomination of desolation, Daniel, it is it is agreed by almost all scholars at this point, Daniel was actually referring and prophesying of one of the waves of Antichrist that was going to come of a man named Antiochus Epiphanes, who was a Greek king. And Antiochus was going to come, and he was going to attack Jerusalem in uh Uh, after Daniel in about about 150 B.C. He was going to attack Jerusalem, and when he got into Jerusalem, Antiochus was going to uh, bring the god Zeus, as it were, images of the god Zeus, plant them in the temple, and he was going to sacrifice a pig on the altar in the temple. He was going to make Judaism illegal. He was going to put a figurehead in as high priest, and that was what was going to happen, and the Maccabees fought him, and he was the first... uh, uh, abomination that caused desolation. He actually desecrated the entire temple. Jesus is saying, now I want you to watch because another one is coming. And the other one that came, came in 70 AD, and that was Titus. And he came with the Romans, and he came, he entered into the temple area, he desecrated the temple, and then eventually, because the Jewish war took on, he eventually, he had surrounded Jerusalem. It, it was a terrible war. It was a time Jerusalem was starved to death. People were eating their children. It was a time of unprecedented, terrible, terrible things. Read. If you want to read some things of this, it, sometimes I've read Josephus and I've had, literally had to put the book down. I was so sick to my stomach. What awful things happened to Jerusalem at that point. And then eventually Titus just wiped the whole thing out and, and, and leveled it. And the temple, of course, has not been rebuilt even to this day. He was a wave. He was an antichrist. And then Jesus is going to talk about, and Paul talks about in 2 Thessalonians, This in the book of Revelation, when we get to the book of Revelation this fall, he's going to talk about the final wave that is going to come, a final man of sin who will actually enter into the world. Now, Jesus, of course, has his pastoral concern. And notice what he says. He says in verses 16, 17, and 18, he's warning the people, get out of Judea. Get out. Don't go into Jerusalem. Get out. Flee. As soon as you see this unfolding, flee. Get out of there. Don't even go down and get your stuff. This is just euphemistic language. Don't even go down to your house and grab anything. Don't pack a suitcase. Get out of town. And history tells us that during that time, Christians did flee from Jerusalem in large numbers because they had had this forewarning from Jesus. And then, of course, the question became... uh, well, And then you have verses uh, 21 and 22. And here's where biblical scholars on all sides, uh, they're they're not sure where these verses fit. And I'm going to actually just give you the facts and let you decide, okay? Uh, Do these fit with the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD? In other words, do they fit with 15 through 20? Or does 21 and 22 introduce the beginning of what now Jesus is going to turn to, which is the actual second coming and the events uh, preceding that? And that's this. It says, and there will be great tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved, but for the elect's sake, those days are shortened. Now, some scholars who look at this and say, well, this is referring to the events around 70 A.D. Uh, will say something like this. You know, there has been tribulation has been going on. Verse 9, Jesus teaches that. But it got so great around the events of 70 A.D. that it was such, just a horrific time. And Jesus is referring to those horrific times. Um D.A. Carson, many of you know, a very, very, very godly godly and good scholar, he says he's convinced that this is around 70 A.D. because he said the phrase, such as not been since the beginning of the world until this time, nor ever shall be. Those words couldn't be spoken of a final tribulation uh, such because there will be no time after the final tribulation. And so uh, that. On the other hand, others look at this and say, wait a minute, This sounds way more intense than even that, although that was intense, and now comes in this idea of the elect. Now comes in something that is larger than Judea. This is no longer a local warning here. This is a worldwide warning. This is something since the beginning of the world, and this is something that involves the whole world, because if this wasn't shortened, no no flesh would be saved. That's hard to see that that's surrounding the events of Jerusalem. That seems like this is much greater. So you decide where those two verses fit. But there's no real question from verses 23 on that now we are focusing on the second coming of Christ. Look at verse 23. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there, do not believe it. For false Christ, antichrists, And false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. Therefore, if they say to you, look, he is in the desert, do not go out. Or look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man be. For wherever the carcass is, there the eagles will be gathered together. Now notice this text. Jesus is saying that, again, false Christ, antichrist, false prophets, false religion, false state, that this is all going to rise. But notice that it gets ramped up a little bit in verse 24. And this involves signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. Now if you read 2 Thessalonians, Paul is gonna talk about the fact that a man of sin is gonna rise and that signs and wonders are gonna be accompanied. Now we're getting into where things are actually miraculous. And so you're gonna have people say, I saw a miracle. I saw something miraculous. I saw somebody healed. I saw something happen. It was miraculous. This has to be the Christ. This has to be him. He's over here. He's in this stadium. He's in this city. This is the kind of thing, and Satan is going to throw everything that he has at it. And Jesus says, don't believe it. Don't go after it. Don't believe it, because when I come again, it's going to be like lightning crashing through the sky. The sky is going to tear open. It's going to be crystal clear that I am here, that I have come. It's going to be very public, very evident. That's what verse 28 means. You, you look up in the sky and you see all these buzzards all circling around. What do you say? What do you say? Why are those buzzards all circling around? The kids. I had my grandkids say to me the other day, why, why, why are all them buzzards? I said, there's something dead in that field. That's why. And that's what Jesus is saying. This is going to be evident. This is going to, be, this is going to start circling. This is going to be evident. You're going to see what's going on. Then look at verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened. The moon will be not give its light. And the stars will fall from the heavens. And the powers of heaven will be shaken. There will be cosmic shake-up. Things will be happening. The Luke passage that we talked about. There's going to be floods and there's going to be storms and these kinds of things that are going to be going on. Then verse 30. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. And then all of the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with great power and glory. And he will send his angels with a great sh- sound of the trumpet and they will gather together the elect. So now Jesus comes, a trumpet sounds. The elect are gathered together from the four winds from, and, and from the end of heaven to another. All of the elect, all of Christ's people are gathered together. They meet him in the air and they come and they return in his triumphant glory. And then he, and then he warns them, he tells them, as you see a fig tree, you know, follow that, and then he says that um, know that it is near. And he's and he's war- He says this to this generation. Now he's referring back to the events of seventy A.D. He says this generation is not going to pass before this happens. This temple is going to be destroyed. This is going to happen, and this is coming. and uh, And he said, the heaven will pass away, but my words. And then we're going to, in weeks ahead, we're going to look at. He begins to give them a theology of watching and a theology of delay, and we're going to talk about that. So this is what Jesus is is referring to here. Now, the son of man came the son of God came from heaven. And with a pastor's heart he prepares us for some very dangerous dangerous things to happen in the future. He gives us some very vital information here. He's warning us here. He wants us to be prepared here. And it's very important that we somehow try to bring this to ourselves and say, "How? what practical thing will this help me with right now? Instead of just jumping up and jumping back into life as normal. One of the things that he says here is that there is going to be deception and rebellion against God. It is going to grow and grow and grow. And I can tell you, I'm, I was young once and now I'm old. Um, I've seen it grow in my lifetime. And this deception is going to pull in many. As we looked at last week, look at verse 10. Then many will be offended and they will betray one another. Verse 11, then many false prophets will come and deceive many. And the law, love, uh, lawlessness, verse 12, the love will grow cold for many. Many. The love of many will grow cold. And in fact, the deception... The deception is going to be so powerful, so great. And when people are deceived, they don't know they're being deceived. It's going to be so great. Look at what he says in verse 24. He says, for false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive. If possible, even the elect, even the elect of God are going to be, are going to be thrown into some minor stages of confusion. And the deception is going to be so great and so pervasive. Many are going to be deceived. Many are going to be caught up into the world. Many are going to be caught up in a rebellion against God. For many, the love is going to grow cold. Many are going to turn away from truth. Many are, and others aren't. So as I sit here in my study, and I read this as a pastor, and as one of the elders of this church, one of the shepherds of this church, I have a pastoral burden. I have a burden for you and for all of us. Who... I don't want us to be deceived. My job is not to preach to the world. My job is to preach to this small group of people. My job, and the job of, our, of, the, of my fellow pastors here, our job is you. Our job is to shepherd you, to, to, to help you, to, to, in one sense, in that sense, get you all safely to heaven without deception taking you away and the world taking you away. And so, again, to that end, I look at a passage like this, and we can talk about eschatology tonight But what I want to talk about is we live in a world right now where these waves are crashing already. How can you be protected? How can you be preserved in the midst of this? And to that end, I want to just give you some pastoral advice in terms of this, kind of like what Jesus is doing now. One of the things that is going to be going on and that goes on is a love, a love for this present world. Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2. I'm not talking about a love for creation. That, that's, God has that. We're to have that. A love for, for the beautiful things that God has created in this earth. A love for our family. A love for our land. A love for flowers. A love for the tree. No, no, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about something different. And John makes it very clear in 1 John 2 verse 15. And notice how he ties this right in with the passage that we already put up on the screen about antichrists. 1 John 2, 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now notice you have a choice. Love the world or love God. You can't love them both. If you love the world, you don't love God. That's what John is saying here. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And so lust of the flesh, and that, that is that is certainly sexual lust things, but it's way more than that because the flesh in the Bible is our sinful nature. It could be the lust for recognition. It could be the lust for money. It could be the lust for pleasure. It could be the lust for anything else. This lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes. And this pride, this arrogance, this arrogance that says, I don't need God. I can do this on my own. I've got this. I've got all the wisdom I need to run my own life. I don't need God. He says, all of that is not of God. It is of the world. That's how the world thinks. Verse 17, but the world is passing away and the lust of it. This world is marked for destruction, but he who does the will of the Father of God abides forever. Then notice he jumps right in. Little children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard of the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. And by this we know this is the last hour. The waves started to crash. And then notice verse 19, he actually talks about apostasy, people leaving the faith. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out and that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. This apostasy, these were deceived. These followed the world. These were sucked in. They're gone. They're part of the many. And John is trying to warn his people. He speaks to them as the elect, but you have the anointing from the Holy Spirit and you know all these things. You have the Holy Spirit. You know these things. And so what we need to be careful about and cautious about and are being warned about is the love of this world. In, John chapter, in James chapter 4 and verse 4, James puts it this way. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? If you're a friend of this world, you're an enemy of God. Whoever, therefore, wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And so this idea is the love of the world, the love of the world. Now, why is my heart so exercised about this? I'll tell you why. The world in our generation now has a pervasive presence with you in your life that is unprecedented in the history of the entire world. The pervasiveness of it, its words, its lies, its suggestions come at us so constantly, absolutely, unbelievably different than the world uh, before us. In fact, think of it this way. We live in the 21st century. The 20th century was where this pervasiveness of the world began to really invade. But the 19th century, 18th century, 15th century, 12th century, 9th century, 6th century, 5th century, 1st century, where Jesus was, all of that time, they had a very different relationship with the pervasiveness. The, the sins were the same. What am, I, what am I talking about? Well, let me give you an example. If I was, When I was a young teenage boy, and me and my other totally fallen, totally depraved teenage boy friends wanted to see pornography, we either had to go to 7-Eleven and steal a magazine, or steal one from our older brothers, or find one whose dad had a stack in his basement. That was the only access we'd have pornography. Today, what do the depraved teenage boys do? They pull out their cell phone. That's the pervasiveness of the world. Now, Jonathan Edwards, who is a great uh, uh, a preacher, in in the 1740s, they actually had a pornography problem in their church. It it became a a big controversy. What was that? Well, the boys got a hold of a midwife manual. I don't know how they did it, but they did it. And there were no pictures. It was just words. It became this huge, explosive thing that actually even led to Jonathan Edwards being dismissed from the church. Let's go back for a moment here to colonial times. 150 years from now, 200 years ago, think about what it was like. Do you know that those people never saw one advertisement ever? I read read several years ago that there was more information, more news in one New York Times Sunday edition than Jonathan Edwards would have got his entire lifetime. So let's bring that up to now. One news website. You go on one news website, there is more news right there and more information there than Jonathan Edwards would have got in his, in his entire lifetime. That's the pervasiveness of the world coming at us. Think about this. Those colonial boys back in Northampton where in Massachusetts in Jonathan Edwards' times, they would have never seen one provocatively dressed woman. Not one. They would have never seen a woman scantily clad unless their sisters were running to the outhouse and scantily clad or or their mother was nursing a baby. They never saw one scantily clad. Not one. Never. They, they, They never watched one sitcom let alone a series. They never watched one series. They never even saw, the live concerts were were kind of classical music you hardly ever saw, or a bunch of people with a guitar on a back porch. They never saw one photograph. There was no such thing as photographs. So think of the deception, the presence of the world in our life now. Advertisements, movies, sitcoms, uh, serial series is on TV. Netflix and Hulu and 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 Peacock and 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 TikTok and and Instagram and Space and Snapchat and all of this coming at us, coming at us, coming at us all the time. Pornography, absolutely, totally accessible, and all of it subtle, and all of it deceptive, and all of it lies. And it's the world saying, "Come and love me. Come and embrace me. Come and be a part of me." Come and think like me. Come and be like me. Come and react like me. Come and see this as normal. Come and see this and accept it. Come, come, come. And what happens to us as Christians in the midst of all of this pouring at us is that we slowly and subtly and incrementally slowly get changed and get pressed and get conformed in its image. And that's why Paul says in Romans chapter 12, he says, do not be conformed into the image of this age, but be transformed. No, we become conformed and we don't even know it we become catty. we become gossipy we cut other people down we become cynical in fact when i first became a christian one of the first sins i thought that i really needed to come with was i was so cynical i made fun of everything i laughed and looked down on everything we were hippies we were cool we were we 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 we, we got made a fun of everything we laughed at everything and there was this dark cynicism that i had within me we hate people who would disagree with us. We call names. We form cliques. And then we've been taught, 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 trained, 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 uh, uh, propagandized, propagandized, that lied to us, lied to us, lied to us, to be preoccupied with the material, preoccupied with money, preoccupied with luxury, preoccupied with toys, preoccupied with fun, preoccupied with entertainment. I recently saw an advertisement. And it was it was for one of these apps where with your phone, you know how Venmo and stuff you can send money, PayPal, you can send money, you just swipe your hand and send money. This wasn't that. I thought it was this. It wasn't that. And it was a woman, and she was she was uh, she was drinking mar- uh, mojitos beside a pool, and she was she was uh, she was buying this and buying that and buying this and buying that, and her happiness was tied up in it, and we were being encouraged to do the same thing to her happiness to be tied up in it, and then I realized. She's not taking money out of her checking account. She's credit carding all of this stuff. She's And they said, don't worry. And they even said, yeah, don't worry. You can pay it later. Go, 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 go have fun. And we as Christians, we, we, we begin to be, get caught up in this. And before long, we start to think like them. We want what they have. We need, and then we go from wanting it and wanting it to we need that, we need that. And then we go from we need that, we need that to we must have that. And then we go from we must have that to being bitter that we don't have it. And the world has just seduced us in. This, this, this culture that we live in is absolutely, wickedly, strangely preoccupied with sex. Do you know why we're preoccupied with sex in our culture? Sex is great. I got 11 kids. Sex is great. Okay, sex is not sex is great. It's created by God. It's beautiful. It, it, it binds married couples together and it makes you sure sex is great. I'm not getting down on sex. Why are we preoccupied with sex? Because modern man has decided there is no God, there is no creator, there is nothing that inspires awe anymore. There's nothing greater than ourselves anymore. There's nothing that is filled with wonder and majesty and power anymore. There's just us here. And what modern man has become, and, and, and Sigmund Freud led us in this direction very well in his wicked way, was to become preoccupied with the one thing that we have as mere mortals on this meaningless planet, and that's the power and beauty of sex. Now, they didn't realize that what they were actually obsessing and making an idol was a gift from the true and living God. That there's something greater than sex. It's the true and living God who's that. They didn't. They don't realize that. But we're preoccupied with sex, and it comes at us from all of these ways, all constantly, until all of a sudden people joke about it. And we as Christians are joking about it, dressing provocatively to try to stimulate sexual. We don't even know. People don't even know they're dressing sexually anymore. Anyway. I mean, I literally have seen little girls standing, waiting for the bus. And I'm like, who dresses a a second grader like that? We're sexualizing everything in this culture. Even the most innocent things become sexualized in turn. They do it this way. They do it that way. We see the opposite sex as objects of mere pleasure. That's all they are. And we push the edges, we push the edges, we push the edges. And Christians get caught up in this. And before you know it, there's preoccupation with with material. There's preoccupation with sex. There's a preoccupation with entertainment. And then there's this preoccupation with our emotions. We have been taught to be totally preoccupied with our emotions. Now we have college campuses where there's safe zones. Because... They disagreed with me, and I don't feel safe. You can't disagree with somebody on college campus because they don't feel safe. They have places where you can go and pet puppies so you can calm down emotionally because you don't feel safe. We're preoccupied with our emotions. But you see, Christians get like this too within the church, as if somehow our emotions are God, and, and we can't do anything with our emotions. And then you start reading scripture to these people when Jesus says, fear not, only believe. It's like, oh, that's oppressive. Oh, you're stepping all over my emotions. I don't feel safe when you talk like that. I feel threatened. What is the result? The result, the Bible's warning us, is that our hearts grow cold to God. Our hearts grow cold to God. Dear friends, we lose our first love. And God is no longer preoccupying us because the world is preoccupying us. The love of the world has taken away our love for God. In fact, I would urge you, I would urge you to ask yourself this question in all areas of your life. Is this activity, this TV show, this podcast, this entertainment, this what I do, does that draw me nearer to God? Or does that draw me away from God? Now, some things are neutral. Checking the oil and uh, checking the oil in your car and checking the tires. Okay, that, that, you know, that's stuff we gotta do. I get that. But when you read this book or watch this movie or listen to this song or hang out with this group of friends or do this or do that, at the end of that time, when that is over, are you ready to open your Bible? Do you you, you want to get home and do and just pray? Are you ready to go and worship? Is your heart drawn toward God? Are you thankful and love God? Or are you strangely cold, strangely preoccupied, strangely stirred up? Is your heart now stirred up toward toward unseemly thoughts or, or cravings or desires or dissatisfaction or just mind distraction? Are you being distracted away by the world? Are you being deceived? Look in Luke twenty one. I told uh, look in Luke twenty one, that passage that we read, and I want you to read a passage, a section I didn't read. Look at what it says in verse thirty four. It says, "But take heed to yourselves," Jesus said. This is part of the whole thing. Heaven and earth will pass away, in my words. Then Jesus says this. But take heed to yourselves. What's that mean? Keep an assessment. Watch your heart. Guard your heart. Look at your heart. Don't lose your first love. Lest your hearts be weighed down with. Carousing, that's partying, drunkenness and the cares of this life, preoccupation with the material, and that day come on you unexpectedly. For it will come as a snare, a snare, a trap on all those who dwell in the face, on the face of the whole earth. Watch out, therefore, and pray always. That's why I'm saying, do these things take away our heart to pray? that you may be counted worthy. Some of your Bibles say may have the strength to escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. Dear friends, look at that verse and feel Jesus pleading with you. Don't be weighed down with these things. Guard your heart. Look at your heart. Is the world sucking the life out of you? Dear friends, we need to be very careful. Jesus said, remember Lot's words. Remember Lot's wife. Remember Lot's wife? Sodom and Gomorrah, the place of sexual indulgence, the place of luxury, the place of of, of wealth, the place of this. And when God says, get out, because I'm going to destroy it, get out, Lot and his daughters and his wife flee. And as it comes, Lot's wife looks back. She looks back, and God judges her, and she becomes this statue of, of salt. To stand there looking back at Sodom, looking back with longing, looking back because she was lo- she didn't want to leave all that stuff, looking back and she became a pillar of salt that over the years would just melt slowly away until she decayed down to nothing. And Jesus says, remember Lot's wife. Dear friends, if the wrath of God came today, would you be Lot's wife? What would you look back and say, oh, that's too bad. Oh, all my partying friends on a Friday night, oh, that's too bad. Oh, the bars. Oh, oh, Hollywood's going to be... Oh, no. All oh, those musicians. Oh, no. Oh, no more Netflix. Oh, no more series. Oh, no. Oh, oh, no. Oh, oh I, I kind of miss it. Remember Lot's wife. Because you look back, you're not going forward. Oh, dear ones, be careful. And we need to be careful because so many times I hear people who are Christians, and they are Christians. They're genuine Christians. But they're thinking just like the world. I have Christians say to me, yeah, but at least I'm still standing on the sod. I'm not under it. Yeah, I had that surgery. I got over the side. Yep, at least I'm still alive. I'm still standing on the sod. I'm not underneath it. I feel like grabbing them and saying, Are you a, do you understand what you're saying? You're a Christian. What you're actually saying is, oh, I'm still in this diseased body. I'm not in paradise. Good thing I'm not in paradise. Good thing I'm not seeing Jesus. Good thing I'm not singing with the angels right now. Good thing I'm still down here. That's good. That's really good. I'm glad I'm, still, I'm glad I'm down here still. Are you serious? You're thinking like the world. The world has invaded you. How about this? Hey, as long as she's happy. As long as she's happy. Oh, yeah, my daughter's living with her boyfriend. But, hey, as long as she's happy. Oh, yeah, he left his wife. He's got the trophy bride. now. they're in a condo in Florida. Hey, but as long as she's happy. What do you mean as long as he's happy? Happiness is not the goal. That's worldly thinking. The world is coming. Oh, to each their own. It's okay to look, just don't touch. Who said that? Jesus said to look is to commit adultery. Finally, listen. It says this. Jesus Christ. Go back to Matthew 24. Jesus Christ is coming again. Jesus Christ is coming back with power and glory. Let's just look at this. Look at what it says here. Verse 30. The sign of the Son of Man will be here in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he'll send out his angels with the sound of a great trumpet, gathering together all of his elect from the four winds. This is the coming of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is coming again. And why is that important for you and I to remember? Because persecution and tribulation is coming before he comes. And that persecution and tribulation is coming every age, and we're having it in our age. And in our age, that tribulation and persecution can be terrible and violent, like it is in Myanmar right now. Last week we were told that a pastor and his wife, the pastor wasn't drugged out on the town square And shot, as we've been told, week after week after week. No, no. This one was different. The pastor and his wife were forced to sit in their house and watch as their 16-year-old son had both of his legs cut off and bled to death. You think Satan's playing games here, folks? He's not. Now, in our generation, where we live here in America, that's not the persecution right now. Here's the persecution right now. You're a follower of Jesus. You're on the wrong side of history. Jesus' view of marriage, that's oppressive. It's patriarchal. Jesus is, is oppressive. You follow Jesus, and you have Jesus' work, you have Jesus' sexual ethic, you're a bigot. You're a follower of Jesus, Jesus is an enemy to progress. You follow Jesus' crazy sexual ethic, you follow Jesus, he wickedly takes away women's rights. You follow Jesus, you follow Jesus, you follow Jesus, you follow Jesus you're a bigot, you follow Jesus, he's a bigot, you follow Jesus, it's wrong, you follow Jesus, you're on the wrong side of history, and then all of a sudden, the trumpet blasts, a worldwide trumpet blasts, and the people look, and they say, what in the world is that, and then the, the sky rips open, Jesus said. And there will be an army, a massive, massive army, the army of the angels of heaven. And they are coming, and they are under the leadership of the King of all kings. And Jesus Christ will appear in great power and glory, and then the angels will say, "In the world of people who have been saying, Jesus is crazy, Jesus is wicked, Jesus is followers of Jesus, are say, what is that? Who is that? And they're going to hear, it is Jesus, it is Jesus, the Son of God, bow your knees. And what's going to go on through their mind? What is going to happen in their mind? Jesus tells us, look at verse 30, and the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all of the tribes of the earth will mourn. Oh, no! Jesus was right. Jesus is God. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is my king. Jesus is my judge. Oh, no! I'm on the wrong side of history. But the believers will say, oh, yes. Why is Jesus then allowing it to get harder? Why are we being tribulated now? Why are we coming under tribulation? Why are we coming under persecution? Well, Jesus is purging his church. He's refining his people. He's purifying his people. Many are compromising. Many are being deceived. Many are imbibing the world. Many are afraid to be canceled. But others, and I hope this is happening to you because it's happening to me. That's why I can preach so plainly here. Others of us are planting our flag more deeply and saying, "Nope, I'm not coming with you. I'm with him. Dear ones, save yourselves from this sinful and adulterous generation Do what it needs you need to do. For me, I had to cut down TV dramatically. I had to be very careful what I watch. I had to get off social media. I had to ramp up prayer time. I had to ramp up Bible study time. I had to ramp up meditation. I'm even reading more biographies of great and godly and powerful people to keep me close. And I have tried to stay as close to Jesus so that my love for him will grow. My loyalty to him will grow. And I will grow fearless. I will never, ever, ever want to forsake him. I'm trying to get my heart vibrant and real and alive with Jesus in such a way that I love him so much that I don't care what they do to me. What they do to me. Nothing can stop my love for him. I don't want to be deceived and go down with the many. I want to be one of the elect that the angels gather to be with him in heaven. And oh, I want that for you. Take these things to heart. Take these things to heart. I'm going to close this time by reading to you. And if you would like to follow along with me, please do that in 2 Corinthians. But if you don't want to follow along with me because you're kind of better listening, please listen very carefully. And let the word of God have its final word. And it's 2 Corinthians chapter 6. It's on page on 1,330. Listen to the word of God. This is the apostle speaking to the wicked Las Vegas of his generation, Corinthian. Corinth. He says in verse 14, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial, that's Satan? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, verse 1, having these promises, beloved. Let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Let's pray. Father, please help us, we pray. I pray for every single person in this room today. I love them. They are our sheep. We are all your sheep. I pray for this dear congregation. As the world is prying in through our ears, through our eyes, even brainwashing us, I pray that we none of us here would be deceived. I pray that all of us would stand on that day. I pray that you will not help our heart, that you will keep our hearts from growing cold. I pray that you will help us not to be deceived. I pray that you will help us to clearly understand, see, and know you and be the people who are full of faith when you come again, the faithful ones that you find. Help us, we pray. We ask this in your precious name.